Good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning. Are you enjoying spring? Yes, I'm enjoying spring. Yeah, it's great. Well, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the spring, the sunshine, the, the new life that reminds us of the new life in you. We ask that your spirit will join us today and lighten our minds, bless this message in open avenues so that it might lighten the world and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number four in the quarterly preparation for the end time and the title is Salvation and the End Time. The memory text is, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us, for our sins. First John 4.10 from the NIV. What does this text mean? Do you notice in the text who loves us? God loves us. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, I'm just pointing that out. It's not only Jesus that loves us. God, the eternal Father, loves us. What does atoning sacrifice for our sins mean? Does it mean a legal payment? Does it mean a blood sacrifice to atone the wrath of an offended God? At one. At one. To bring into oneness, to bring into unity. So we could rephrase it as um, he presented him um, as a sacrifice to bring us into unity with God because we are sinful. We could rephrase it that way. What about this statement, for our sins? Atoning sacrifice for our sins. The preparation for. Does the preparation for kind of lead your mind down a certain trail when you read it? He's a sacrifice for our sins. Well, if you look up in the Strong's lexicon, the Greek here, it's tra- the same word is translated multiple different ways in the New Testament. And 148 times it's translated of. 61 times it's translated for. 40 times it's translated concerning. 31 times it's translated about. And as touching, touching, concerning, on account of, because of. So if if we read it in some of these other ways, let me just read it to you. A sacrifice, presented as an atoning sacrifice of our sins. Atoning sacrifice concerning our sins. Atoning sacrifice about our sins. Atoning sacrifice as touching our sins. Atoning sacrifice touching our sins. Atoning sacrifice on account of our sins. Atoning sacrifice because of our sins. Atoning sacrifice around our sins. Atoning sacrifice near our sins. Now, and, and did you notice, though, all of this one word is interpreted and translated in the Bible all these different ways. It can mean all these different things. Do you get a different connotation, a different emphasis, a different message if you hear it as a Tony sacrifice because of our sins? Does it kind of say something different than a Tony sacrifice for our sins? Which of all those possible interpretations is most likely to lead your mind down a legal trail? Isn't that interesting? There was like 10 different possibilities here. And of the 10 different possibilities, the one possibility most likely to be interpreted or lead you to think it's a legal solution is the one they chose. Why? Because by the time the Bible was translated into English... 
This idea, this infection of thought, the idea that God's law functions no different than human law, a system of imposed rules that require imposed and legal punishments and, and legal solutions, that was accepted. It wasn't questioned. That's just the way it works. And so, naturally, then you pick the one that fits the premise that you already hold. And so the Bible translations have been artificially infected with this legal language or legal constructs because the people who went to translate them already believed it worked this way in many cases. So here's the uh, same from the remedy. This is what real love is. It's not that we have loved God or we have done something to get him to love us, but he loved us so much that he sent his son to become the remedy to cu- and cure for the infection of sin and selfishness so that through him we might be restored into perfect unity with God. First paragraph says, in the lesson, one fascinating but crucial difference between Christianity and non-Christian religions is that while the others emphasize what their founders have taught them, they do not emphasize what their founders have done for them. And that's because whatever their founders may have done for them, it cannot save them. All these leaders can do is try to teach the people how to save themselves. First question, cannot... Wendell. In reading the the memory text, the last word, sins, is also, depending upon what you think they're talking about, if you're talking about mistakes you have made, intentional or otherwise, or is this traits in us that need to be corrected? So the Greek can be translated sins or sin. Same word, you have to decide. So if they translate atoning sacrifice for our sin, do you get a different meaning than atoning sacrifice for our sins? But but even traits, we could have wrong habits and whatever. All of those are plural, sins, but they are not transgressional acts. It's not even that. It's for our sin, for our condition. That's what, it, that's what it really is. He is the reconciling, healing remedy for the condition with which we were born and for which God does not hold us accountable. God does not hold us accountable for being born in sin, conceived in iniquity. How many had a choice on who your parents were? See, we, we didn't have a choice. We were either born into the world in the sin condition or we weren't ever born into the world at all. God does not hold us accountable for that. Thus, through Christ, he provides a solution and as we come to the age of accountability, we have a choice to participate or partake of a free solution or remedy that heals and fixes this internal condition, or we reject it. That's what we're responsible for. Light has come into the world, but men have preferred darkness. That's when judgment comes. Judgment or condemnation comes when we reject the remedy for the condition, not because we have the condition. Yes? Scripture tells us that God is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Yes, yes, just like a parent is touched with the, with the pain their child is struggling with in sickness. That's well said. So, in the paragraph it says that these pagan deities or leaders or founders cannot save them. And I thought, okay, from what? From themselves. <laughs> what, from what are we being saved? In pagan religions, what is the character, nature, attitude of most of the pagan gods? Particularly toward the sinner. In order for a worshiper to receive the blessing or the grace or the forgiveness or the protection of the pagan God, 
what do those systems require? Appeasement, offering. The God must be paid in some way. In most pagan systems, what is the problem if the worshiper fails to meet the required requirements of the God? They fail to bring the proper offering to the God. What, what's the problem with that? <coughs> Punishment by who? The God. the God. Okay, that's exactly right. What about in Christianity? The lesson is making the point that in Christianity is superior to other religions because God does something for us. And we would agree, yes, God does something for us. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. God does something we can never do ourselves. However, despite the fact Christians get the point right that God does something for us, that we can't do, Christianity is still infected with this idea that God is the one who needs the something done to. So God's the one who provided the sacrifice to pay him, to assuage him, to influence him, to propitiate him, and we now must legally claim when we go before God the sacrifice to assuage and propitiate him because if we come with the wrong sacrifice to this God then this God will be the source of punishment to us. It's still pagan. So many Christians have paganism. Uh, so, many, so many Christians have paganism as religions in which the worshiper offers the God a sacrifice or payment or propitiation to the God. But in Christianity, you know, God provides the propitiating offering himself. But they fail to realize that even though that's true, when we turn it around and make that propitiatory offering, Jesus' blood to the Father, to the Father's law, we're still teaching paganism. I put a search engine, and thus, and thus, what, what is it that within Christianity in that view are we needing to be saved from? We're still needing to be saved from the angry and threatening God. That's the problem. So I put in a search engine in, uh, in, uh, one of these, um, uh, I think it was Google. What does Jesus, from what does Jesus save us? From what does Jesus save us? And the first, the top non-paid hit, <laughs> okay? So I, don't, I didn't go with the paid ones. The top non-paid hit was from the Christian Apologetics and Research Institute, and it reads as follows. On the day of judgment, God will judge all people for their sins against him. He will judge all who have lied, stolen, cheated, lusted, dishonored their parents, etc., he will do this because he is holy and righteous. God must punish the sinner. God cannot and will not ignore the person who has broken his righteous law. The law is a reflection of the character of God. Therefore, to break God's law is to offend God and deny the holiness of his character. He will be vindicated. He will judge. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means that your sins have caused a separation between you and God, and the result is death and wrath. The only way to be saved from the wrath of God is to be saved from it by faith in Christ. You must trust what Jesus did on the cross to forgive you of your sins and not trust in anything else, not even your own sincerity or works. It is Jesus and only Jesus who can turn away the righteous judgment of God upon the sinner. Number one, hit. This is paganism, guys. It's paganism. This is why there's a delay. This is why the Lord hasn't come. He's waiting for a message to lighten the world. Because when Jesus comes, what does it say in John? 
we will see him face to face for we shall be like him. There's a law, one of the design laws. By beholding, we become changed. We become like the God we worship and admire. When we present pagan God constructs, we don't become like Christ. We remain, we, we remain in fear of Christ. So in this, we have an angry, angry, offended God who's the source of inflicted punishment and therefore needs something done to him in order for him to forgive and not kill. 19th century congregationalist theologian George MacDonald wrote, The Lord never came to deliver men from the consequences of the, their sins while those sins yet remained. Yet feeling nothing of the dread hatefulness of their sin, men have constantly taken the word that the Lord came to deliver us from our sins to mean, notice, he's got it right, the Lord, you know, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to deliver us from our sins. McDonald's got it right. Deliver us from sinfulness. To deliver us from our sins to mean that he came to save them from the punishment of their sins. This idea has terribly, terribly corrupted the preaching of the gospel. The message of the good news has not been truly communicated. Unable to believe in the forgiveness of the Father in heaven, imagining him not at liberty to forgive or incapable of forgiving forthright, not really believing him God who is fully our Savior, but a God bound either by his own nature or by a law above him and compulsory upon him, level four thinking, law and order, to exact some recompense or satisfaction for sin, a multitude of religious teachers have taught their fellow men that Jesus came to bear our punishment and save us from hell. But in that, they have misrepresented his true mission. May I just add that in Luke 1, when John the Baptist's father could finally speak again, after he said the boy would be named John, it says that his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, and I'm going to um, kind of skip down to the part about what Jesus' mission was for. His mission, um, uh, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Yeah, that's exactly right. Restore us to love and trust. So I want everyone to see this very clearly. This idea that God is the source of inflicted punishment comes from the lie that God's law functions like human law and requires imposed penalties. This is the lie of Satan from the beginning of the controversy in heaven and is the lie that the remnant people are to specifically oppose and eliminate from our representations of God. You can have the Sabbath day and still present a mark of the beast God. It's just an arbitrary rule. He made up. It's a test of obedience. If you don't do it, for all those who break the Sabbath day, God is required to inflict punishment on them. Therefore, somebody has to pay for the penalty of your sin. If you don't get that penalty and confess that you did something bad on the Sabbath day, God will torture you the amount of time you need before he kills you. You can have the right day and crucify the Savior of the day, in other words. Second paragraph reads, In contrast, Christians emphasize not only that Jesus, what Jesus taught, but what he did. This is because Christ, what Christ did provides the only means by which we are saved. Christ's incarnation in human flesh, 
His death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ministry in heaven. These acts alone are what saves us. And I agree with that completely. These acts alone. We would agree. We don't dispute this at all, that we are saved by the life, death, resurrection, and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's absolutely true. So we don't argue those points, but for what purpose? Can you describe the life, death, resurrection, ministry of Jesus Christ in such a way that you actually undermine trust in God? Yes. You actually create enemies of God. Yes, that's the problem. So many are stuck because they are claiming, they're accepting Jesus, they're claiming what he's done for them, but they're applying his achievements to something that doesn't need application. See if I can give you an example. And thus it has no benefit for them. It has no benefit for salvation. Here's, Here's the example. It would be like having pneumonia, and a physician develops an antibiotic that will cure you and provides it to you for free. You acknowledge that the physician developed it, that you have done nothing to create it, that you haven't earned it, that it was provided to you at no cost, and it's necessary for your healing and salvation. You acknowledge all these things. And then you accept the antibiotic that the doctor has given to you for free, and you go to your medical records and you pour it over your medical records so that it will erase the record of your sickness. What happens? Do you get better? But you've accepted. You haven't tried to earn it. It's free. And then you apply it where it has no effect. And when the doctor comes in to examine you, because you've been applying this remedy to your record books uh, to try to erase the records, he comes in to examine you. What condition does he find you in? He finds you terminal. That's right. You're dying. You're terminal. That's exactly right. This is what Christ describes. Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We performed miracles in your name. We've done all these things. Get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. They're trying to apply the, the merits of Christ to their legal accounts and do all these things that the law requires. They've never applied it to their hearts. Or, and this is the problem with the legal salvation method. We take the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus, and we legally claim it, and we apply it in some construct in a courtroom in heaven, but we don't actually apply it to our hearts. How about this one? When the doctor comes in to examine you, you offer the doctor the antibiotic to propitiate his wrath and prevent the doctor from killing you. (laughs) That's class. Here's the blood of your son. I know, you know what? We've sinned. God is a holy and righteous God, and he must punish sin. I know what we can do to put ourselves back in good grace with God. When he sends his son to us, we'll kill his son, and we'll save some of the blood. And when the father shows up, we'll say, here's the blood of your son that we killed. Now, Now do you love us and are happy with us? That's, that's what's taught. It's ridiculous. What would the doctor do if when you came in, not having partaken? Remember Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. He said, you must ingest me. You must take me into your being. I am the power that renews and restores. I am the truth. If you're not taking me into your heart, it's not doing you any good. So what happens if the doctor comes in, having given you this free antibiotic that will absolutely cure you, but you have accepted it in your possession, you've acknowledged the reality of its necessity, but you've applied it to your books. You haven't partaken, you haven't ingested it. And so when he comes, you're so bad off, you're beyond healing now. What will his attitude be towards you? 
Will he be sad? Is it possible? He might also be angry. Think about that. Angry, not being personally offended, not angry of what you've done to him, but angry that you were foolish. Angry that he's losing someone he loves without, needlessly. This wasn't necessary. You didn't have to die. You could have been healed. You could have been saved. This is outrageous. Can you be angry in that way? Well, like rebellious children cause in their parents. You know, they offer everything. They cover for them. They enable them even, trying to save them from the consequences of their behaviors and so on. But they continue in the behaviors and they won't do anything to, to set themselves right. So ultimately, they put themselves even out of the range of what the parents can do to help. And the parent hates what those decisions have done to the child, but still loves the child. Yes, of course. And so we're going to see this type of outrage and, 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 and not anger at, but anger over what didn't have to be. Didn't have to be this way. And you get a sense now of the parable of the Faithful steward and the negligent steward. What about those, what will it be like for those who have spent their entire life feeding people the lie? When they become aware that they personally have kept people from being, you don't know, here's what you do, here's the antibody from the doctor, what you need to do is you need to pour it over these records, you know, that's what you need to do. And that, now once you do that, you need to claim that you are now healthy, even though we know you're not, just claim that you believe you're healthy. That's what you need to do. What would it be like for them when they realize how many lives they've prevented from actually being healed? Yes? One of the things that disturbed me about that passage you read from the search engine, there was a lot of truth in it. Yeah. There were phrases and sentences and they were, they were widely understood, were dead on correct, but it was, it was built on a, a construct of sand. So, so which is more deadly? A bottle of poison that has skulls and crossbones on it and says caution poison, or the same poison in a bottle of salad dressing. Which is more dangerous? You know, the lies mixed with the truth are absolutely more deadly than the lies by themselves. Much more deadly. This is what Christianity has done in a great degree because it's been infected with this life. And of course the Bible prophesied, you get your perspective, you start reading scripture, you see God prophesied. A power is going to rise. He's going to seek to change God's law. He's going to wage war against the saints. He's going to win the war. Uh, he's going to be winning the war until the time comes that discernment or judgment is given to the saints, that they can make a distinction between these lies and the truth. We're in that time in history that, that the people are supposed to be going, wait a minute, this legal thing? God's law doesn't work that way. That's not God. That's human. That's Roman. That's imperial. God's law's design law and the problem sin causes is that it changes the sinner. And thus, God doesn't need changing. His law doesn't need changing. The sinful human being needs restoration, healing, recreation, renewal. Yes? And you've said this before, but I think it bears repeating um, in Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God and, and smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds 
we're healed. Yeah, so you notice what's being described here. He's going to come and take up our iniquities, our sinful condition, in order for us to be saved. But, God prophesies through Isaiah, we're, the human race is going to misunderstand, and the human race is going to teach that God was the one that struck him down, and God was the one that punished him, which is exactly what penal substitution teaches, that God, in order to be just, killed Christ on the cross and poured his wrath out upon him in order to the just punishments and all sins, past, present, and future, from all billions of people who've ever lived or placed on Christ, and God punished him there, which is the prophecy. We're going to misunderstand. We're going to teach this, yet it's through his wounds, through his sacrifice, that we experience restoration, healing, and righteousness. We've got to free ourselves from this legal thing. So what is it that Christ achieved by his death at the cross? And he, th- he, he achieved three categories of things. And in those categories, there are specific multiple elements of those. One, he achieved a perfect and complete revolution, revelation of truth. He revealed truth to expose Satan Remember, by his death he might destroy him holds the power of death that is the devil. Hebrews 2.14. And the devil's power of death is, life eternal is, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ and now sent. So if eternal life is knowing God, eternal death is not knowing God. So Satan's power of death are the lies. He's the father of lies. The lies that he tells that we believe that keep us from knowing God. It keeps us separate from him, distrusting of him. And so Christ's death destroys his power by revealing truth that destroys his lies. And I'm going to run down a whole bunch of these. And I'm not even going to suggest this is a complete list. This is just a list that I've come up with. But he revealed the character of selfless love, God's character of selfless love. He exposed Satan as a liar and a fraud and a murderer. And so Satan's nature was revealed. The nature and character of what sin does was revealed. Uh, That Christ was safe with all power. You know, if you look in Revelation, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain over and over again. You've heard that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Jesus proved not with him. All power had been given to him. John 13, and how did he use his power? Self-sacrificially. He did not use his power to stop his own murderers from unjustly abusing him and killing him without any legitimate cause. He will not use his power to coerce you. He's, he's the safe one with the power. That's revealed. What also reveals at the cross that serving God Being a servant of God for the wrong reasons makes you his enemy. Look at the people who were demanding his blood. They claimed to be God's descendants from Abraham and the, and the, and the, uh, the ones who held the, the oracles of God and his representatives on earth, but they served him with the wrong understanding of his designs and laws and for the wrong reasons, and thus they became his enemy. Same thing for Christians at the end. And even the Jews in those days, Jesus and the prophet and the and the what he told what we call a parable, the rich man and Lazarus, isn't about the state of the dead or anything. It's actually a prophecy straight to their faces because he's talking to the Pharisees and so on. In which, in the parable, um, the the rich man says, you know, to go tell my brothers about this so they won't have this happen to them. And the response is, if they don't believe in Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead and tells them. So after that, he raises somebody named Lazarus. And they still won't believe. And sure enough, not only did they not believe, because they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, but now they tried to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Yep, let's, let's kill the evidence too. More revelation at the cross? That salvation isn't simply about a legal pardon process. That God does not, that God does not kill the wicked or sinner. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us 
at the cross, but God didn't lay a hand on him. My God, my God, why are you forsaken me? Why have you let me go? God didn't hurt him there. Wicked men hurt him there at the instigation of Satan. That we have real freedom with God. God would rather let us kill him than take our freedom away from us. This is revealed at the cross. Uh, that God is forgiving or he's not unforgiving. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see me, you see in the Father, this is Jesus, this is the God talking at the cross, that God is not arbitrary or severe. That there is no eternal burning hell was revealed at the cross. That the Sabbath is the embodiment of the law of liberty. Present the truth in love and leave people free. So two great moments in, in universal history, after the creation of planet Earth, God rests and lets his intelligent creatures think for themselves and come to their own conclusion. And at the end of the plan of salvation, as Jesus gives the ultimate evidence of God's character, exposing all these truths, God rests and Jesus rests in the tomb, giving the universe time to contemplate and think, come to their own conclusion. That the justice of God is delivering the oppressed, not punishing the oppressor. That's what justice looks like. That God's law can't be changed to meet the sinner in his sin. It's like the law of respiration can't be changed to meet a drowning man underwater. You can't change it. You've got to get the drowning man out from under the water. You've got to give him oxygen. God had to restore love into the species human. can't change the law because that's the design for life. That God told the truth that sin leads to death. That love cannot be commanded, can only be earned by, by love. And uh, so two more of the truth, the wrath of God, what it actually was. What did God actually do to Jesus? What's his wrath is throughout Scripture? He let him go to reap what he chose. And Jesus chose to be the remedy for sin. And God did not stop him from that course. And that there was no manufacturer's defect in the creation of this species human. Jesus proved that as a human, he could live perfectly in harmony with God's design. There's no excuse for what Adam did. It wasn't a manufacturer. God didn't create him with a defect of some kind that led to the sin. No manufacturer's defect. Jesus proves that. And then that's, so that's under the Rubicon of truth. The other two uh, elements that, that accomplished at the cross, one was actual accomplishment. He destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. He destroyed the infection of fear and self-centeredness that we struggle with in the humanity in which he took. He was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And in Gethsemane, you see his humanity struggling and tempting him, pulling him with powerful human emotions to what? To take what kind of an action? Save self. Save self. But every time the temptation comes, Jesus chooses, no, no one can take my life. I will give it freely. And love overwrites this drive that we have, and he destroys that infection and rises in a new humanity that he perfected. And Hebrews 5.9 says that. And thus he developed, as a human, by the exercise of human abilities, a perfect, sinless human character. He developed it singly and alone. Tim, I think in John 14, Jesus says, the prince of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. That's right. There's nothing that resonates with sin in Jesus. Hebrews 5.9, it says, once he's made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once he's made perfect, wasn't he always perfect? No, he was always sinless. You have to understand, Bible language, perfection is about maturity of character. God can create sinless beings, Adam and Eve, angels in heaven. God cannot create 
character. Character is developed by the choices of a sentient being. And thus, after Adam chose to corrupt his character, Jesus came and chose to develop a perfect character. Thus, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. So he accomplished things. And third, so he reveals truth, and he accomplishes the remedy. A new human state of being accomplished in Jesus Christ. And third, he ministers his ministry. He applies his achievement. So he's in heaven directing all the agencies at at God's disposal to reach us, to win us, to woo us, to to protect us and ultimately to heal and transform us. That's his angels, that's the Holy Spirit to convict, enlighten, transform, empower, and apply Christ's achievements to us so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That's his heavenly ministry. You know where the application work of Jesus is? It's inside you. It's not in a smoky building up there. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, reads... Not too long before the cross, Jesus spoke with his inner circle about how people can come to the Father through him. It was then that Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. And it recommends uh, John 14, uh, 8 9, and this is what it says. Don't you know me, Philip? This is John 14, 9. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do we believe that God the Father is exactly like Jesus in character. Do we teach that? Do all of our doctrines consistently make that point as we unpack our doctrines, do they unfold in ways that Jesus and the Father always come out with the same character? Or do we have a problem in Christianity where as we unpack doctrines, we find that we have two characters at work here? We have a loving, gracious, self-sacrificial, forgiving redeemer And we have a a, a severe, angry, wrathful, as we read in that description earlier, personally offended judge who needs to be influenced. Anything like that's a lie. If you see that happening, it's a lie. But even that, I think, is couched sometimes where it's maybe not angry and wrathful, but it's holy and just. Yes. 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 Third paragraph says, One reason Christ came to the world was to reveal the truth about God the Father. Through the centuries, wrong ideas about him and his character have become widespread, not just among the heathen, but among God's chosen nation as well. The earth was dark through misapprehension of God, that the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God. Satan's deceiving power was to be broken. Well said. This is a brilliant paragraph. Beautifully said paragraph. What lie do you think is the most common lie held by Christians today about God? That his law functions like this. See, I think that's the real one. The most, most of the Adventists, if you ask an Adventist church, probably would say eternal burning hell. That's the biggest lie. But in this class, because we've been looking at this, I think, of course, we, we, we agree that that's not, that's not a truth, it's a lie. But this lie, I think, is much more impactful and deep. Yes. You know, what the Adventist church doesn't speak about eternal burning fire, but they're happy with saying, you'll be burned in for a short period of time. Right. It's the same thing. Yeah, God will use his power to keep you alive while he tortures you before he kills you. Uh, hundred years? Uh, yeah. One day, the pain is still the same. I think. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. 
and it makes God out to look terrible. Yes. What about this idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him? Does this mean that only people who have heard about Jesus and accepted Jesus and baptized into Jesus will be saved? Do you know it's commonly taught this way? There's a passage in Romans 2, 13 through 15, that says those who have not heard the law, for, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are law for themselves, showing that, they, that though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. What's the new covenant? I'll write my law on your heart. So these are reborn people who the Bible is saying be saved, but they haven't heard anything about Christ yet. Here's another one. Zechariah 13.6 says, if someone is talking about the new earth, the earth made new, if someone asks him, what are the wounds on your body? He will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. The, the implication here, there are going to be people in heaven who don't know the story. You're not going to say, hey, Jesus, where did you get those wounds? Uh, where did that come from? You're not going to ask that question, are you? You know where those wounds came from. But there are going to be people there who don't know. They're going to ask. So do we have a contradiction here? Where the Bible is saying some people who haven't heard about Jesus, therefore haven't taken the official step to, to claim Jesus as their Savior and been baptized into Jesus, who won't even know the gospel story, are going to be in heaven. But Jesus said no one comes to the Father except through me. Is there a contradiction here? So how do you reconcile that? Now, Jesus enables people of every generation, culture, and so on to, to come to, I guess, feel through nature and through their experience and so on uh, what's right and wrong and consistently choose right. But it's through the Holy Spirit, whether they know it or not, anything good comes from God. So let's tighten up what you've said. Let's give some, uh, some Bible foundation for it. Romans 1, chapter 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So you said through nature. So here we have Paul teaching that people can come to God through the truth about God as revealed in nature. But we have to have one more linkage here. So they do that. How is that still coming through Christ? Well, because Colossians 1.16. For by Christ, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So if they come to God through nature, who's the member of the Godhead who put all those lessons in nature? Number one. So if they come to him through nature, they're coming to the works of Jesus. Number one. Number two. When they come to trust God from the revelation of God's character in nature, when they come to trust him, they open the heart and the Holy Spirit begins doing a work in them. From where is the Holy Spirit getting this human perfect character to apply and reproduce? Who are, who are they becoming like? It's still the work of Christ being reproduced in them. He's still the remedy, even though they don't know that remedy yet. It's like somebody who is given an IV infusion of an antibiotic and they don't... Like, any docs in the room? What medicine you're on? I don't know. You ever get that? I don't know. Does that mean because they don't know it doesn't help them if they take it? There'll be people who don't know, but they've partaken. They've partaken. Christ says that the Holy Spirit is speaking only what he hears. That's right. 
That's right. So in the Holy Spirit, he's going to take what is mine and make it known to you. He's not going to speak on his own. He speaks only what he hears. So the Holy Spirit is Christ's representative on earth, communicating to you the pleas of Christ. So when you read passage, Jesus is in heaven before the Father pleading his blood in our behalf. Yep. But he's not pleading to the Father. He's before the Father, carrying out the Father's purposes. And the Father's purposes are, he loves you, and the Father wants you to be saved. And so Jesus is pleading for the Father to you, and the Spirit hears those pleas, because the Spirit doesn't speak on his own. He he speaks what he hears, and he's listening to Christ, and Christ is pleading, "I, I love you. You're important to me. I can heal you. Will you trust me? I've died for you. And this is what's happening. But when you go from the legal penal view, oh no, we have Jesus up there pleading to the Father, because the Father is a pagan deity who, without this pleading and blood and payment, would lash out and hurt you. And in some systems, you not only have to have Jesus doing it, you have to have Mary and all the saints doing it, because he really needs working on. <laughs> you laugh at that, but it's just as criminal to do that with Jesus alone. And so what happens in many Protestant and Catholic groups is they argue back and forth whether Mary and the saints are pleading or just Jesus. And I've heard this classic from certain Adventist pastors that they are just outraged that Mary is is put up as a co-redemptrix and put up as another intercessor in heaven when only Jesus is our intercessor to plead his blood to the Father. And they miss the entire point that the devil's laughing at them because they are still worshiping the same pagan God that the Catholic is worshiping. If they have this this being who needs to be worked on, otherwise he'd lash out at us. They missed the whole point. Till I see Jesus pleading with the Father, meaning they're together pleading to us. Yep. So, you know, he's pleading with the Father, but he's not pleading to the Father. Yes, exactly. You get this also in John when he says, don't you know, I never say anything on my own. I speak nothing of my own. I speak only, um, you know, the words I speak are the words the Father has given me to speak. So there's evidence from Jesus' own testimony that what you said is absolutely right. Monday's lesson. Sin separated the human race from God. A yawning chasm opened between them. And unless the chasm closed, humanity was doomed to eternal destruction. The gulf was deep and dangerous, yet it took something utterly incredible to solve the problem of sin and to reunite sinful humanity with a righteous and holy God. It took one eternal with God himself. One as divine as God himself to become a human being and in that humanity offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Yes, there's that language again. Now this can be understood in a very healthy way. It absolutely can be. But I would ask the person who wrote this, offered himself to whom for a sacrifice for our sins? And if they say, well, they offered himself to God. Lie, paganism. Offered himself to God's law. Lie. Paganism. Offered himself to us. Now you're getting down to it. God did not need. See, when Adam sinned, did God get changed? Did God's law get changed? Did the condition of humankind get changed? God did not need something done to him to fix him. He was perfect. His law was perfect. Nothing needed to change there. The gulf between God and man wasn't because as some many models, if you read, because God suddenly became personally offended. He was outraged. He was angry. He was wrathful. How dare you, little plebes, after all that I've done for you, uh, rebel against me. And, And this is how it's often taught. This is paganism. This is Satan's view of God. Didn't happen. But something changed in us. 
And therefore, yes, he did sacrifice himself to provide what was necessary for our restoration. So it says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us, pause, that's substitution. Some accuse this class, well, maybe not y'all, me, <laughs> of denying the substitutionary nature of, death, of the death of Christ. I do not. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Do you see? That's substitution. But here's the reason. So that we might be declared legally righteous even though we're not. That's not what the Bible says. That's what penal substitution lie says. So that we might become the righteousness of God. It was for our restoration to actual, legitimate, real righteousness. That's good news. That is incredible news. That's exactly what... One of the pastors in our church told me, they said, but Tim doesn't believe in the substitutionary death of Christ. But at that time, when I heard it several years ago, I didn't know what to say. And the reason they say that, see, if I were to say, Jesus did not have to die in order for doctors to develop penicillin. That's true, isn't it? He didn't have to die for that purpose. Is that the same thing that was saying Jesus did not have to die for our salvation? That's not the same thing at all, is it? And so when I say Jesus didn't have to die to pay a legal penalty to an offended God to assuage or propitiate his wrath, since that's the only reason they have in their database, well, I take their reason away, well, then there's no reason that Jesus had to die. Jennings said Jesus didn't have to die. That's what happens. And that's why they say that. Yes. So in that in that verse where it says Jesus became sin, though he knew no sin. So what does it really mean that he became sin? So I think the Isaiah text tells us he took upon himself the infection of what the carnal selfish nature does and he experienced temptation in every way just like we are as a human being. And we see it in Gethsemane. He his human he wasn't just tempted like at the beginning of his ministry after his baptism he went out in the desert and confronted the devil and the devil tempts him externally. In Gethsemane, he's tempted by his own humanity. He felt unbearable human emotions that caused such anguish. And he pleads to the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, we can tell what he's being tempted to do. And he's being tempted to use his power to act in self-interest. Now, if you read Scripture, over, once he's on the cross, I think it's three different times people have come to him and said, you've saved others, save yourself. If you save yourself, we'll believe in you. Come down off the cross and save yourself. See, the core thing in the carnal nature is the survival of the fittest drive. That drive of fear, fear of death, that drives us to be willing to kill others and act in self-interest. Jesus was tempted. He had that, that capacity for temptation. Yet, every time the temptation came, he overcame it with self-sacrificial love. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And so he destroyed that infection in his humanity. So the sense in which he became sin for us is that he had human bodies like we do that want to save themselves, but he chose not to save himself. He took the very condition with which we struggle, as I understand it, upon himself and cured it. That's what I understand it means. It's, it's the condition itself, not the act or the deed. It's not a legal uh, behavior that he took upon himself. See, the legal view would say, we took every sin, every misdeed that has ever been done through human history was placed on him, 
And therefore, the father had a judicial pronouncement and added up all the amount of punishment that he had to suffer and then inflicted that punishment on him for a legal process. That's a lie. That didn't happen. And you can see the foolishness in that very quickly by some, just some simple questions. You know, people, uh, Hitler and, and Stalin, between the two of them, I think, killed 100 million people. Thus, they shortened their lives. And they shortened the lives of sinners. Meaning that those 100 million people didn't live another 30, 40, 50, 60 years committing sin. So billions, probably trillions, perhaps quadrillions of sins were never committed by those people. That thus, Hitler and Stalin were reducing the suffering of Christ. Because those sins weren't placed on them and didn't have to be punished anymore because they didn't get. So all, all, all the abortions that happen prevent people from ever being born who commit sin. And therefore, all those sins can't be placed on Christ because they never happened. Therefore, reducing the sufferings of Christ. You see, it makes no sense that this is behavioral application and punishment. Yes? So the pre-cross animal sacrifices fulfilled what precisely? Uh, they were theater, object lesson. It says right in Hebrews that the... Pardon? Certainly object Yeah, there was, no, there was no salvation benefit. It says right in Hebrews in two places. I think it's in 8 and 10, or maybe it's 9 and 10. But it says the sacrifice of animals could not cleanse the conscience of the worshipers. And that's what was needing to happen. The conscience or the minds or hearts need to be recreated. But the animal sacrifices could never do this. Thus, a better sacrifice had to come. It was all theater. There was nothing actually salvific in that, even in Old Testament times, as evidenced by Nebuchadnezzar. Did he ever sacrifice a temple? But he was saved. Naaman. Naaman never sacrificed a temple. Saved. Wasn't required for salvation. The reason they didn't have to sacrifice a temple is because they weren't part of the acting troop. They weren't descendants of, of Abraham. The sons of Abraham were the acting troop, and that's why they were required to do it, because they were on stage and they had a script. Some people call that script scripture. They had a script that they needed to follow in acting out the drama. We will unpack that more in two weeks in very great detail and show you, and it makes perfect sense when you see this as theater. This is what it was. They had a cool stage, they had neat props, they had cool costumes, and they had a script. And it was all theater. Nothing salvation. And this is why David could... Uh, well, we don't have time to go into that. Go ahead. Many of us have grown up with the legal model and with, with um, re- repetition, have ingrained that into our minds. And even some of the hymns, which I have grown to love, you start singing them along and wait, whoa, you know, this is not right. You're exactly right. I, I, the one I love, uh, uh, trust in the Lord, uh, trust and obey. So when you walk with the Lord, when you walk with the Lord, and you, I, I can't remember the words unless I do the tune, right? That's, that's a different memory circuit, you see? Okay. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, I, I switch one of the words around. It's, it's um, when you walk with the Lord of his word, he sheds on your way. If you do his good will, here's the change. He abides with you still. If you do his good will, he'll abide with you. But if you don't, he'll... he'll no. If you do his good will, you abide with him still. That's why I changed that. If you do his good will, you abide with him still. You see the difference? Okay, well, I was taught, you go in the movie theater, your guardian angel won't abide with you. It stays at the door. But your recording angel goes in to write down all the evil deeds you did. So you can get punished for them. Okay. See how corrupt that system is. No. And, and, and there's evidence what I'm saying is true. At the end of the Babylonian captivity, the children of Israel were instructed to go where? Back to Israel to rebuild the temple. Where do we find Mordecai and Esther? 
stayed. Mordecai and Esther stayed where they were they were supposed to be. No, they were supposed to go home. They didn't go home. So therefore God abandoned them and didn't help them. No, he still helped them, even though they weren't where they're supposed to be. Go to Nineveh, Jonah. Go to Nineveh. Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh. Did God abandon him? Daniel didn't go back. Well, Daniel, I think, died really shortly thereafter. Yeah. He was praying about the end of the seven right, years. Right, right. Seven years, he was still praying. He didn't go back. Yeah, I don't know that Daniel was still alive when the word finally came. I'll have to check that out. I, I, I was under the impression he was dead by that time. But I'll have to check that out. He was listed as somebody who returned. At least somebody named Daniel is in the list of people who Who did return. Okay, maybe he did that. I suspect Dan, if Daniel was alive and capable with his prayer and his longing, he would have been eager to return. So, if he didn't return, it was either he's dead or he was too enfeebled to return. <laughs> okay, so back to this thing though. Uh, he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we may become the righteous of Christ. That means we actually become righteous. And what does it mean to become righteous? It means we become in heart right. What does it mean to become right? We become restored to God's design. We become people who love God and others more than self. That we begin to value his methods, his principles. And ultimately we come, it says in Revelation, 4, uh, Revelation uh, 12, 11, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They've had the survival drive replaced with other-centered love, and they're willing to die in love rather than seek to kill to protect self. Well, do we see any examples in human history of sinners, not Jesus, because of course Jesus showed that perfectly, but yes, Moses, age 40, is a murderer. Age 80, take my life out of the eternal books to save these people. I'll give my life for them. Something changed in Moses. Paul, Damascus, prior to Damascus Road, holding the coats, seeking to actually use the power of the state to kill people who aren't uh, Jew, Jews anymore and rebelling against Judaism. After Damascus Road, I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be converted. Stephen, as they're stoning him, the martyrs through history. Miriam and Barbie Fisher. Remember the story of Miriam and Barbie Fisher? Oh, 1996, I think it was now, maybe. Maybe not that long ago, but the, uh, at Nickel Mines Village, um, Pennsylvania. Um, the Amish, the single, the single room schoolhouse Amish girls, and the, and the uh, Carl, whatever his name is, I can't remember his name at the moment, uh, walks in and sends out all the adults and all the boys and keeps uh, ten little girls and barricades the doors. And, he, and as the police arrive, he becomes agitated and it becomes evident that he's going to start killing and shooting at guns with them. Um, 13-year-old Miriam stands up and says, shoot me and let the other ones go. And he shot and killed her. And no sooner did her body hit the ground than her 11-year-old sister Barbie stands up and says, shoot me next and let the other ones go. He shot her five times, but she survived. You see, that kind of love is not natural to the human heart. That's supernatural. That's the Spirit of God working in someone's heart. That's loving others more than self. That's a, righteous, that's a person who's become the righteousness of God. That's what it looks like. Our religious systems obstruct this because they make it about legal performances, making sure that you have been baptized in the right way, have communion in the right way, go to church on the right day, and do all these behavioral stuff and claim the legal blood and record books in heaven. And as long as you do all that, you can be a priest and a Levite and walk past the beat-up man along the side of the road. It's okay. Because you've got all your checkboxes in your legal system. 
By the way, another evidence of the Jewish system not necessary, Samaritan, who helps the Good Samaritan. In the story, the only the Good Samaritan is right with God, but as far as we know, he never sacrificed at temple. He never ate the, the kosher foods. He didn't, he didn't do all of those things. He didn't dress the right way. Well, how could he be saved then? Because he was renewed in heart. And that's the plan of salvation, to heal the brokenness in us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love and truth and freedom and that you sent Christ to achieve what we could never achieve, revealing the truth, destroying the the lies, opening the way and providing the remedy to restore us back to righteousness. And, And we ask now that your Spirit will take what Christ achieved and reproduce it in us. Give us new desires, new motives, new longings, new insight, new wisdom that we can become effective at this time in human history, that this message will finally go forward. The world will be lighted and you will come. We pray in your holy name. Amen.